Thank you for listening to the Waterstone Community Church podcast. We hope you're enjoying God's word proclaimed. We are a growing movement of transformed people, reshaping the culture to reflect God's heart. If you'd like to know more about Waterstone or to find out about our service times, please visit us at waterstonechurch.org. Good morning. Welcome. In 1950, Austrian professor Theodor Erismann developed an experiment where he engineered a pair of goggles with mirrors on the inside, and so that when the wearer was thinking they were looking down at the ground, they in fact were looking up at the ceiling, and when they thought they were looking up, they were looking down. And as only a good professor can, he ordered his student assistant, Ivo Kohler, to wear them. Now, Kohler struggled mightily wearing these goggles. He, when he thought he was looking down at the ground and was watching where he was walking, he was actually looking at the ceiling, and so he stumbled over all sorts of objects on the ground. He also had trouble reaching out for doorknobs, and when people were, were handing him objects such as cups, he had a hard time knowing where they were because he was so disoriented. But over time, he slowly adapted these goggles after he was wearing them 24-7. And slowly, slowly, his his brain started to make an adjustment to this upside-down way of seeing the world. And so after 10 days, Ivo Kohler, he became so adapted that he was able to perform everyday actions without any trouble. He even rode a bicycle through town and didn't fall over once. I, I just find that amazing. And I wonder... If you're like me, if this series and the Beatitudes on this series on the way of the king has kind of felt like putting on one of those inversion goggles. Jesus keeps on calling people and and ways of being blessed that I would never have compared to being blessed. Poor in spirit, mourning, meek. How are those blessed? I've been very disoriented during this series because so often Jesus seems to value the things and the people diametrically opposed to what I value, what the world tells me to value. And as I've been sitting in this disorientation, it's had me thinking about the fact that theologians and Bible scholars oftentimes call God's kingdom the upside-down kingdom. But as I've been, been thinking about this concept of the upside-down kingdom, because the kingdom, va- kingdom values are so opposite of the world, it's made me thought that maybe it shouldn't be called the upside-down kingdom, but it should be called the right-side-up kingdom, and that we are living in the upside-down world. We're the ones wearing the upside-down goggles, and that Jesus comes onto the scene, and he's the only one without wearing these goggles. And that the rest of us, ever since sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, that we've been wearing these goggles and we've just forgotten about it. And so Jesus is inviting us through the Beatitudes, inviting us through the Sermon on the Mount to start taking off these inverted goggles. It's disorienting. It's a challenge. But do we trust Jesus enough to take them off? Every single one of the Beatitudes has 
has seemed upside down and backwards. But this morning, we get to a beatitude that I'm sure as soon as I read it, some of you will be wondering, why didn't I just stay home? I don't want to hear this. This is even more backwards and more upside down than all of the rest. But hang with me as we attempt to take off our goggles and see the world as God would have us see it. And so, Jesus, he ends the Beatitudes by saying, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Have any of you ever met one of those Christians that saw persecution as behind every single bad thing that's ever happened in their life? That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is not talking about the persecution of receiving your your eggnog latte from Starbucks without Merry Christmas being sprawled all over it. Nor is Jesus talking about a persecution where someone stands up to you because you've been doing something unjust, where you've been doing something wrong, where you've been just downright mean. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Peter, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, who likely was sitting in the front row as Jesus was giving these beatitudes, he a few decades later wrote to one of the early churches who was facing persecution, and this is what he had to say to them. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal, or even as a meddler. What Peter is saying here is don't suffer for the wrong reasons. Don't suffer for doing something wrong. That doesn't bring you any glory. But if you suffer for the name of Christ, the Spirit of God rests on you. So what is Jesus talking about here? What is Jesus talking about in this beatitude? And blessed are those persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I think there's a spectrum of persecution of of how intense the persecution looks. For example, we here in the United States, maybe the worst of the persecution is that that people insult us, that they they think we're weird. They, They might even say false things about us. But that's usually about the worst that we receive here in the United States. But there's an intensity that grows in many other parts of the world where where this can be also a severing of relationship, which we can also have here. But also, you're going to jail for your faith. You're being tortured for your faith. You're losing your employment. You're, in the end, being killed for your faith. And so it's not just one of these that's persecution, but there's a whole spectrum of persecution, and I think we need to understand that. But that still doesn't get to what is Jesus talking about. I think the key to understanding this beatitude is the phrase, because of righteousness, in the beatitude. 
I think that the word righteousness is thrown about so much in religious circles sometimes that it begins to lose any kind of meaning. Righteousness, when you ask someone, they, they might even say that it's this, this private morality of I don't have sex outside of my marriage, I pray occasionally, I sometimes have a daily devotional. That's what we would kind of define as righteousness. We would define it as this narrow thing. But Bible scholar Alec Motyer, he defines righteous as those right with God and therefore committed to putting right all other relationships in life. And Tim Keller, he continues on and he says, this means then that the biblical righteousness is inevitably social because it is about relationships. But in the Bible, righteousness refers to -to day-to-day living in which a person conducts all relationships in family and society with fairness, generosity, and equity. And so righteousness, it isn't just this, this private morality, but it's this holistic term that encompasses our entire lives. I think for an example of righteousness is, is when a business owner decides that, that instead of squeezing out every last ounce of profit out of their company, that they're going to pay their employees well because their employees are made in the image of God and they want to take care of them. I don't know all of the details, but I recently read that Costco, for the second time in the last year, has raised their minimum wage to $15 an hour. Now, I'm not sitting in their board meetings where they discuss all of this, but but my hope is that they realize that they want to take care of their employees as well as their stockholders. That's what righteousness is. It's this holistic understanding of right relationship. In fact, the, the Greek word that's behind our English translated uh, as, as righteousness is also the same exact Greek word that's used for the word justice. And we have two very different understandings of righteousness and justice, don't we? Righteousness is, is this private thing. It's inward focused. Maybe it's even upward focused towards God. And that justice is outwardly focused. And yet, It's the same word. In fact, in in French and Spanish translations of the Bible, they actually only use one word, and that's the word justice. And so they would translate this as, blessed are those who are persecuted because of justice, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Somewhere along the way, we've siloed these concepts of righteousness, justice, and peacemaking into separate ideas. But I think from a biblical perspective, they are much more intertwined with one another. And not only does Jesus say that that believers will face persecution because of righteousness, but in the parallel beatitude of the second beatitude that we're looking at this morning, he said, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. There's this, there's this parallel image of the reason why we're facing persecution is because of righteousness, but also because we're followers of Jesus. Let's look at Jesus for just a moment, though. Jesus is the only truly righteous one. He was the only one who was fully right with God because of his own merits, and he was so committed to making all relationships right that he came here in the flesh. 
to put all relationships right. And so Jesus is the epitome of righteousness. And so to be a follower of Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus, is to be someone committed to putting all relationships right. And to be someone who's committed to putting all relationships right is to be a follower of Jesus. They're kind of like peanut butter and jelly. They always go together. It's last fall when we were in the the sermon series on life of Moses, we looked at the Ten Commandments and the first half relate to how we interact with God. And the second half relate to how we interact with other people. And Larry, a couple of weeks ago, he pointed out that the structure of the Beatitudes is, is similar. The first half are how we relate to God and the second half are how we relate to other people. And when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul. And love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus couldn't just leave it at the one, but these two always come together. Loving God and loving other people is always connected. Jesus purposefully places this beatitude last because the beatitudes, they build upon one another. God in his grace and his mercy, he saw that we were poor in spirit, that there was no way that we could make our relationship right with God. And so he sent his son Jesus to do that for us. And as we begin to understand the grace and the mercy that God has given us through Jesus, we, we begin to mourn the fact that God's good creation is broken. The relationships are strewn all over the place. Our relationship to God is broken. Our relationship to creation is broken. Our relationship to others is broken. And even our relationship to ourselves is broken. And as we begin to mourn that, we we long for a healing. We long for reconciliation. We long for those relationships to be made right. And as we become hungry and thirsty for that, as we become hungry and thirsty for that healing, Jesus has come and he's already started that healing project. And he, in fact, has invited us to join him. He has invited us to be his agents of peace and his mercy in the world. And while we'll do that imperfectly, we get to be a part of what God's doing today. But paradoxically, when followers of Jesus have so latched on to the way of Jesus that they are seeking peace and they are seeking his mercy and they are seeking his righteousness, Jesus says that the world will persecute you. But that raises the question, why would the world persecute Jesus' followers because of righteousness, justice, and following Jesus, those sound like pretty good things, don't they? But let's look at the response to Jesus. He was the only righteous one. He was the only just one. He is the only true peacemaker who has ever walked this earth. But Jesus wasn't applauded. We killed him instead. Jesus disrupted the status quo because he was walking around without wearing those inversion goggles and he was inviting other people to take them off as well. And this threatened the power brokers of his day. This threatened the Pharisees who were the religious, pious folk 
and they wanted him dead. This threatened the chief priests and the Sanhedrin, the urban religious elite. They also wanted him dead. This threatened the Herodians, who were, who were kind of the pragmatists, who said, you know, we'll serve the Romans. We'll, we'll give in to our, our occupiers and we'll serve them. They also wanted Jesus dead. And so these, these oftentimes warring groups, they came together and they brought Jesus to the Romans. And the Romans, when they listened to him, they also decided that Jesus was a threat that needed to be neutralized. Now, this is a truly incredible coming together in, in, in uh, unison of these various groups. I mean, this is more outrageous than if the Republicans, the Democrats, the Libertarians, and the Green Party all came together and they all unanimously agreed that Jesus needed to die. It's more outrageous than that. And so Jesus, right before he was arrested, he knew that, that his, his coming arrest and death were imminent. And this is what he warned his disciples in John. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I have told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. Paul, last week, he noted that being a peacemaker, being someone seeking right relationship in all aspects of life is not necessarily going to be a conflict-free life. And so that's where I have a hard time with true righteousness and true justice because I'm more of a people pleaser. I'm more of someone who's conflict avoidant. I would rather the easy peace of no conflict rather than the hard fought peace of shalom and completeness and wholeness. After college, I worked at an emancipation home for kids in the Department of Youth Corrections and Department of Human Services for a couple of years. And while we were there, there was a motto that we had there that was conflict ignored equals broken relationship. Conflict resolved equals deeper intimacy. And this played out over and over and over again as I was there. The times when kids would start to break the rules of our house and, and we were just, for some reason, either too tired or we just didn't want to enter into another conflict and ignored it. That oftentimes snowballed. And it became something far bigger than it originally was and it was far more destructive in the end for the kids. But the times that, that we as the staff were willing to, to keep firm on our boundaries and when we were willing to enter into conflict with our kids that day and resolve it in a healthy way, those were the times that our relationships with our kids deepened. Those were the times that they realized that someone actually cared enough about them to say stop. Those were the times that our kids didn't need to be sent back to jail. And so over and over again, I learned this lesson, but it's still hard for me. Alpha and Barna recently did a study together on American Christianity today. And they just wanted to study a few things. And, and they looked 
and they found that 94% of millennial Christians agree or strongly agree with the statement, the best thing that could ever happen to someone is for them to come to know Jesus. It's near unanimous support that, that being in a right relationship with God is the best thing that could ever happen to someone. That's really great news. But the survey continues. It says that 47% of millennial Christians agree or strongly agree with the statement that it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. Somewhere, it became wrong to share the best news the world has ever heard. Somewhere we have internalized what culture has been telling us and what society has been telling us that we just need to keep our faith private. That faith is okay, you're allowed to believe what you believe, but keep it at home and keep it in your churches. It's not allowed in the public sphere. Don't talk to me about it. And I think we have bought into that because we've also bought into the lie that 40% of millennials Christians agree or strongly agree with the statement that if someone disagrees with you, it means they're judging you. This isn't to pile on millennial Christians because I think that this is something that, that all generations struggle with. We all struggle with privatizing our faith and keeping it in the right lane so that the rest of society doesn't get upset at us. But I think if we are to be people of, of righteousness and seeking right relationship in all aspects of our life, shouldn't we long for people to be in a right relationship with God? Penn, Penn Gillette, the Vegas magician who's an outspoken atheist, he says, if you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think people shouldn't proselytize, who say, just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? while I would word this differently than he does, I think it's an interesting point. Am I too afraid of the persecution that someone would, would think that I'm weird because I'm a follower of Jesus? Am I too afraid of the persecution that someone just might ignore me at lunch Am I too afraid of the persecution that, that someone might say, we're no longer friends? But what am I giving up if I give in to that fear? I'm giving up sharing with them the best news the world has ever heard, that God wants to be in a relationship with them, that God loves them and cares about them and sent his son Jesus for them. Are we willing to rock the boat a little for people to be in right relationship with God? Are we willing to face even low levels of pushback from people? Who are we praying for 
that they might know Jesus? Who are we praying for that they would be right? Are we praying that we would have courage to engage with them? Are we praying that we would be engaging in right relationship with them and that they would see that we are committed to right relationships in all aspects of our life? And do we have the courage to invite people to Easter, to VBS, to our next Alpha, where they can hear about the good news of Jesus in a safe place? And I don't think Christians only face persecution for being followers of Jesus, but I also think that it can be because we seek right relationships between other people. I had a professor who he, a long time ago, lived in Oakland, and he moved into an immigrant neighborhood, and as he was living there, he noticed that one of the apartment buildings that the the landlord seemed more interested in taking advantage of his tenants. He seemed more interested in being a slumlord than a landlord. And so my professor, along with some of his friends, they they came together and they confronted this landlord about the injustices of the way that he was not repairing and that he was abusing his tenants. And the landlord ignored them. So they upped the ante a little bit by starting to file complaints. And once again, the landlord ignored them. And so in the end, they filed a lawsuit on behalf of the tenants against this landlord. And the landlord started getting really upset. The landlord started to try to physically intimidate them, to scare them into dropping the lawsuit. This professor and his friends, they saw that the relationship in between this landlord and these tenants was broken. And they sought to make it right. Thankfully, the court system agreed that this landlord was treating them poorly and agreed to set things right. But who and where are the relationships in your life that you might have some small piece of power over that might need to be made right? And are we willing to engage in that? Are we willing to make it our problem instead of just ignoring it? But this still leaves the question that I'm sure all of you have been wondering since the very beginning of this morning, is how is being persecuted for righteousness' sake or on account of Jesus flourishing or blessed? How can Jesus tell his followers to rejoice and be glad when they face persecution? Has Jesus lost his mind? think as we contemplate that question, we need to remember the promise that Jesus gives in the midst of this. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you, because great is your reward in heaven, for they persecuted the prophets as well. And so the promise is important. Because I think if I were facing stiff persecution for my faith or for righteousness' sake, I would be wondering, has God forsaken me? 
The rest of the world is angry at me, so is God angry at me too? Have I done something for God to leave me in this awful circumstance? But once again, we look to Jesus. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed three times, Lord, take this cup from me. I don't want to go through the cross if it's avoidable. Jesus was not a masochist. But in the end, he said, not my will, but your will be done. Because Jesus on the cross, he took on our sin. He took on our broken relationship with God. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus came for the joy set before him to be God-forsaken up on that tree so that you and I might never have to be God-forsaken. He came for the joy set before him that you and I might be clothed in his perfect righteousness. That we might be able to sit and be called children of God, that we might be citizens of a new kingdom. He came so that you and I would be eternally accepted. And so commentator Dale Bruner He writes, Jesus assures those persecuted for his and righteousness' sake that it is just such persecution that proves the disciples' authenticity and so gives them the present joy and assured hope of full membership in God's future kingdom. Persecution comes because followers of Jesus have so taken a hold of the way of the king and the kingdom that the world pushes back. The world can't stand when other people have taken off their inversion goggles and are walking around and are acting differently. And we rejoice when that persecution comes because we get front row seats to the kingdom coming today. We get front row seats of seeing what God is up to, the way that he is reconciling this world even in the midst of the brokenness and the hurting. But not only do we get the front row seats today, we are glad and we greatly rejoice because we know that one day Jesus' kingdom will come in its fullness and we will be there that we will be there when all relationships are made right, that there will be no more pain, that there will be no more suffering, that there will be no more death, and that we will be called God's children. And so we greatly rejoice because we know that we have full membership in that kingdom. But there's one other thing that's been bothering me as I've been preparing for this sermon. Jesus and all of the other New Testament writers, they they seem to assume that all Christians would face some kind of persecution. And so I've been left with this haunting question of, am I facing any persecution for my faith? Am I facing any pushback for taking off my goggles and living the way of the king? Or have I too sanitized and privatized my faith that no one even cares? Does my life, does your life 
look different enough from our neighbors and coworkers and friends and family members that they wonder what's different about you. And so that's something that I want you to wrestle with, of where might we be compromising the gospel because we don't want others to think of us as being weird. This morning, even though we Christians here in the United States, we face maybe a lower level intensity of persecution. This morning, we want to remember our brothers and sisters all around the world who are facing a much more intense persecution. There are millions of believers all around the world who are facing loss of their employment. They are facing imprisonment. They are facing torture. And even some of them are facing death. And so this morning, we want to remember them in prayer. And so this morning, I'm going to invite up Joe Langlois up, and he is a faithful prayer warrior on behalf of the persecuted church around the world. And so this morning, please join Joe as we pray for our brothers and sisters. Lord, remember the hundreds of Christians that are reported killed every month for their faith, while millions more suffer persecution on a routine basis. May they, not only com- <clears throat> May they not only stay committed to the call of Christ, but also respond in love to the evil shown by their aggressors. I pray that your love will open doors for these believers to continue sharing their faith. May those who are persecuting Christians see the evil they are committing and turn to Christ for forgiveness. Show them that you sent your son for the whole world and that you do not want anybody, even these individuals, to perish. Watch over and comfort the families and loved ones of those being persecuted as they often do not receive updates about their loved ones and are not allowed to visit or find it simply not safe enough to do so. May they too remain faithful to you. Raise up your church to support the body of Christ, that we would give our time and prayer and our resources and physical support, that we would rally around those suffering for Christ. May Christians who live in democracies write and call their elected officials and remind them about the injustice that calls to be addressed. Lord, touch the heart of the world leaders to draft and enact policies to fight this persecution. 